Welcome to the Readerly Report. Your hosts are Gail Weiswasser and Nicole Bonilla. We hope you will enjoy our candid book conversations, recommendations, and observations on the reading life. Thanks so much for joining us. Okay, so welcome to another edition of the Readerly Report. Today, Gail and I are going to be discussing the books that we're looking forward to that are by debut authors. Last week, we did authors who had already published books, whose books we were looking forward to. We usually start off our show by just checking in with each other a little bit, sharing what we've been reading, maybe talking about some backlist books we've been reading or some interesting literary news that has come up. And I actually have something that I want to talk about. But we are going to save that until the end of the show because... Last time we ran, we ran over quite a bit when we were talking about all the, the new books that we're looking forward to. So we just want to make sure we get to all of those books in this show. So we're going to start out talking about our list. I think I have seven books and Gail has six. As per usual, we did not talk to each other while we were constructing our list. So you could have seven books or you could have Um, 13. I was struggling with that math there. I'm coming off a very late night. So my brain, and it's very early. So a double whammy there. So Gail, do you want to? All right. Why don't you? Do you want me to start? No, no. Since you have an extra one. Yeah. Why don't you start? Okay. So the first book that I have on my list is a book called Polite Society by Mahesh Rao. It came out on August 20th, and it is being billed as an Emma retelling. I might have mentioned this book before. I'm really looking forward to it. So it's set in India, set in Delhi. This is an Emma retelling that is set in Delhi. A man actually wrote this book. So this is one of, this will be one of my male author books. I believe he's a lawyer turned novelist. And I think he has books that are, are out. He has like award-winning books that are out in, in India, but he, this is his American debut. So it is about a woman. Her name is Anya Karana. She lives with her spinster aunt and she is the one who is the character who's based on Emma. So she lives with her aunt. She has this very sweet friend called Dimple who she has decided that she is going to set up and do some matchmaking for. Over the course of their adventures, there's a handsome nephew. Anya's aunt's son comes to visit and he gets thrown into the mix. Plus her childhood best friend is also in the mix. If you know the plot of Emma, you kind of might know where things might be going. I love the books like this because they are a window into other countries and cultures and how they deal with things. This is what that promises to be. Just a look at how how other cultures deal with love and how they're grappling with these questions that we have about old and new money and gossip and how it influences relationships, whether it's helpful to meddle in other people's lives. And do you really know enough to make these decisions for other people. So it came out on August 20th. I love the covers. It's like really colorful. It's nice to have a woman of color on the cover. I'm really looking forward to reading this. You are the target audience for this book too. Probably. Yep. Jane Austen. (laughs) Jane Austen retelling. Yeah. 
Emma is not my favorite story. Do you like Emma? You know, I'm not sure I ever read Emma. Are we just going the off the form? Gwyneth Paltrow? <laughs> yeah, I feel like it's me and the Gwyneth Paltrow. It, what's the other movie that's supposed to be a retelling of Emma? Is it Clueless? Um, Clueless. That's what I was thinking of, right? As if. Uh, yeah. No, Emma, that well. I know Pride and Prejudice and Sense and Sensibility much better. Maybe I read Emma once. I don't remember. Well, now you can just read Polite Society. <laughs> Tell her. Are you a Jane Austen completist? I am not a Jane Austen completist. I don't think I've read. I think I've only read the three main ones. I think I've read Emma, Sense and Sensibility, which P&P I really and did not like. I mm-hmm. started Northanger Abbey and never finished it, but I feel I liked that. It was it was much snappier, like much wittier, and I feel like taking a little bit darker of a turn for Jane Austen. I have no idea why I finished mm-hmm. it. I probably got distracted and started reading a bunch of different things. But yeah, I should read I should read her other three books. Yeah. Maybe over the course of a podcast we can have a very, very long term Jane Austen. <laughs> three year plan. Yeah, three year plan <laughs> Jane Austen completion project <laughs> yeah i like that idea i like that one a year it sounds like pretty manageable yeah because i don't think i've read i'm not sure i've read them either there's what north anger at north anger abbey mansfield park emma pride and prejudice and sense and sensibility there and then there was like one that was like half done that somebody finished or something yeah and i can't think of the name of that one yeah okay i like that idea i'm, I'm up for that okay we'll put it on the slate um, <laughs> we'll add it to the Ed Cal. So my first one sounds kind of weird. It is, or at least experimental. That's the word I'll choose. Not weird. It's called Machine by Susan Steinberg, and it also came out on August twentieth. And this book is I described as poetry in prose or prose poetry. So it's like half poetry and half prose. Mm-hmm. And it's about a summer and it revolves around a group of teenagers and somebody drowns and the person telling the story is recounting what happened when this girl drowned. They call it a dazzling and innovative leap. Oh my God. You know what? What? I can't believe it. Well, okay. It is not a debut author, but it is a first novel. Does that count? Yes. I think that she wrote... She wrote another book, which I didn't realize, called Spectacle, but I'm wondering if that's a collection of poems, because this says a a first novel. So, okay, debut novel, it works. I was like, oh, my God, on the first one, I've already broken the rules. (laughs) Um, So she talks about, it says, a sharply drawn narrative that ferociously interrogates gender, class, privilege, and the disintegration of identity in the shadow of trauma. So That sounds um, really good. You know, yeah, um, it's... It got the reviews on Goodreads are all over the place. I see everything from one to five. And sounds like a good book club book. Just, mm-hmm. People definitely react differently to the format. Some people think it's jumbled. Some think people think it's gorgeous. Uh, I don't know. It just sounds kind of interesting. So it's a little bit of a different story. The the plot itself doesn't sound that different, but I think the re- the, the format in which it's told does. It's funny that you say that in terms of mentioning that this is a debut novel, because I mentioned Ta-Nehisi Coates' novel last week, and it really was not the place mm. for it. it um, this show would have been the place for it, because while he is very prolific in terms of 
his career at the Atlantic and his two, his two books, one of which is more of a memoir and the other, which is a collection of and reworking of the articles that he's written at the Atlantic. Water Dancer is his first novel. Right. And I just looked her, this one up and she has written a bunch of short story collections. So, but this is her first novel. So, okay. So we can. Yeah. Debut is, it can be in that genre or category, I guess, because they're very different. He might be great. Ta-Nehisi Coates might be great in terms of nonfiction and, and essays, but fiction is a different game. Right. Okay. All right. So next up I have (laughs) this book that seems really interesting. It is a memoir. It's called Diamond Doris and it's by Doris Payne. It is about this woman who grew up during the Great Depression. She grew up in segregated West Virginia. I have to apologize because I have no idea what's going on in the city today, but it seems like every two minutes a helicopter or an airplane is flying by. Now I can't hear. Okay. Well, well, hopefully, hopefully our listeners at home don't hear it either. It's driving me slightly batty. Just in case, I wanted to just mention that. Let's back this up. So Doris grew up during the Great Depression. She grew up in a segregated coal town in West Virginia. As a young black girl, she was not really, it was not an expectation of her that she was going to have a great life or have nice things or anything of that nature. But she didn't listen to anyone else in terms of what her potential was. And what she started to do was she started shoplifting little pieces of jewelry. Like she really wanted to help her mother get out of an abusive situation and relationship and she wanted to better her her lot in life. She didn't have a lot of options. So she starts shoplifting small pieces of jewelry and over six decades, she becomes a world-class jewel thief. At some point, she gets a boyfriend. Uh, she's, it's mentioned that this Jewish boyfriend of hers helped her fence stolen goods to Hollywood celebrities. So this is her writing her memoir. She's 87 years old now. And when asked about how she feels about her career, I guess, as this world-class jewel thief, she said, it beat being a teacher or a maid. So she sounds kind of radical. Mm. Her story, sound, that sounds interesting. Yeah. And you think of jewel thieves as, you know, it seems like it, it would be such a male, it's such a male kind of thing. But apparently she just became really good at, in terms of determining the quality and developing her eye. And so what starts out as just kind of a small way to make money burgeoned into this six decade career of, and now she's writing her memoir at 87. So it's her first book. Wow. That sounds interesting. (laughs) Oh, life. This reminds me of The World According to Fanny Davis, which is another book that I read earlier this year, which is a woman who's writing the memoir of her mother, who was like one of the premier numbers runners in Detroit during and shortly after the Great Migration. So another interesting story, it's questionable whether being a bookie was actually illegal because it, it talks about the development of the lottery. And I don't think it was illegal all of the time that she was doing it, but just another fascinating way that people have been able to carve a place, carve a place for themselves in society do, with unconventional careers. 
you know, having the same kinds of things drive their, just drive their, their, uh, gosh, what would I call their careers? I don't know. Drive their careers. I'll just leave it at drive their mm-hmm. career, you know, family and wanting a better situation for your family, wanting a, a better life for yourself and taking on the stressors of, you know, numbers running was super stressful because you always had a lot of money in the house. So you had to have a gun in the house as well. And, you know, I can imagine that mm. being a jewel thief is, is, has got to be stressful. It would stress me out. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Completely. Cause you're just constantly waiting to be caught. Right. So, yep. And you're harboring contraband. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. My next book is called Bloomland by John Englehart. And it is about uh, a shooting, school shooting at a college and looks at the school shooting from three perspectives, a student, a professor, and I believe the shooter. So it says it interrogates social and cultural dysfunction in a nation where mass violence has become all too familiar. I guess it's not surprising that school shooting fiction has sort of become a whole category of itself. And this even mentions that the book is reminiscent of, we need to talk about Kevin. It also reminds me of what was that book I read that opened with the school shooting last year. I'm going to forget the name of the title. Um, The one that's told from the perspective of the teacher. I'll try to think of it while we're, while we're uh, recording. But this one seems like it really delves very, goes into a lot of detail about like the aftermath of the shooting and how it, unfolded. Probably not the most like pleasant book to read, but you know, even the one that I read about the teacher, it, the first paragraph opens from the perspective of the shooter. And I I guess it's helpful when these things happen to sort of try to understand different perspectives and try to see what at least is motivating the person who's doing the violence just to I don't know, understand the event better. So, I don't know if I'll if I'll pick this one up or not, but it, it certainly is getting good reviews. I haven't even heard of, I mean, the books that you're picking sound really interesting. I haven't even heard, I haven't even seen them. Hmm. I guess I did my research. I know. I was about to say, I think we did some dig- deep digging for this topic. It was not yeah. easy to find. Yeah. I think there was a lot of stuff that came out this fall and maybe that's, they really feel like they have a title that is going to um, be really relevant or sell really well. May I think that maybe the fall just is not very crowded for debuts. I think a lot of them came out at the end of August, the ones that mm. they think will do the best, but a lot of debuts come out over the the year. Cause when, as I was looking for these books, it's just like, a, you know, like a lot of the debut novels, they start coming out in January, February and, and continue through the summer. And then they sort of dry up a little bit. Mm-hmm. I found it hard to find the debuts, but it's kind of, they were like diamonds and, or needles in a haystack. Right. It's hard to find them. One thing that drew me to this one was one of the reviews on Goodreads says that um, each character ends up sort of playing a role in what happened. Mm-hmm. And that she's like, you know, it really brings up so many things that are happening in the world. So it seems like it's a larger story than just this one shooting that it kind of looks at a lot of different 
trends and realities about America through the prism of this shooting, but that it and it's that it's a bigger, larger story. Right. All right. What do you got next? I found this one actually by accident. There's a New York Times article where they were talking to the woman, Chanel Miller, who we know from her victim statement in the Brock Turner case. So she was the woman mm. at the center of that. And she was talking, it was an article about telling her story. And then I realized that she has a book coming out, which is called Know My Name by Chanel Miller. I think previous to this, previous to her writing her book and deciding to come out, she was known as Emily Doe. And it talks about the statement that she wrote, how viral it went, like read before Congress, it was all over the place. And her, this whole thing happened probably on the doorstep of, of what we call Me Too. All of this, all of the things surrounding Harvey Weinstein that kicked off just this firestorm of, of examination of toxic masculinity in the workplace and how women have been held down by it for so many years and it had that breaking out point. So this was right before this. And it talks about the research that she did with her book and how as these stories developed, of course, she had many conversations with her editors and people who were working with her on this on this account in terms of how they were going to shape the story that she was telling. So it's not only her story, but it's also kind of how it dovetails in with all the other stories that came after, after the story, just to see this, how she has processed this and has made steps towards, you know, trying to live a happy life and in, in the aftermath of this. Cause she talks a lot about how isolating even having the support of people, because this was not, this was not a, he said, she said case. There were, there were eyewitnesses to this, right. but still talking about how isolating it is and just what, you know, women who decide to either pursue some kind of case or report their incident, how they're, how they're victimized and ostracized. And if someone like her, who just had the sympathy and the support of so many people, because, because people, she actually had witnesses to it. I mean, imagine if you don't, but right. so that's right. really, she had kind of everything to make her case strong and she still faced what she did. Right. And the guy still got what, six months when he could have gotten 14 yeah. years. So, yeah. so it is know my name by Chanel Miller. And I believe it's out like, I don't know, it'll probably be out by the time we record this podcast or shortly after, <laughs> shortly thereafter. It's like, I like the title. Know my name. Mm-hmm. Because uh, it works on a lot of levels. Right. Yeah. Okay. So this is a real change of <laughs> a pivot from what you just described. So my next book is called Metropolitan Stories, and it's by Christine Coulson. It comes out on October 8th. And this is written – it's a collection of stories – and it is written by a woman who worked at the Met Metropolitan Museum for over 25 years. Actually, I guess it's a novel. It's not stories. Um, but it is a collection of vignettes about things that happen at the museum. Mm -hmm. So it says, has amusing and poignant vignettes in which we discover larger-than-life characters, the downside of survival, and the powerful voices of the art itself. 
So if you're interested in art and museums, this is like a behind the scenes, but it's told as a novel. And um, I don't really know a whole lot about it, except that that just sounded like an intriguing setup. Mm -hmm. The Secret Life of a Museum. And it, like, someone says, um, it's like the adult version of the mixed up files of Basil E. Frankweiler. Did you read that? I remember that book from, I did, yeah. And I read it recently with my kids, uh, maybe even in the last five years. So it's about these kids who, like, live in the Met. Um <laughs> Because they've run away from home and they, they live in the museum. So have they run and away from home? Is this for a night or is this sort of like dire circumstances? Yeah, I'm trying to like, remember. Nah, I wouldn't say it's dire circumstances. I'm trying to remember why. I don't think it's just a night. I think they're there for a little while. And I can't remember how they end up at the Met or why they ran away. It's not like, it's not, it's a lighter book. Okay. So I don't think it was. That's what I'm trying to, it sounds like it. If yeah. you don't remember why. Yeah. Right. I can't remember why. Um, but it's this one, I don't know, just sounds kind of cool. Like, you know, like what happens in the museum at night or like what are the stories behind? Um, this just reminds me of in the, in the library. that uh, Ben Stiller movie. Night at the, oh, yeah. Night at the night Museum. At the museum. <laughs> Actually, that's so funny because I just was reading another review. A truly magical book. This is a collection of interwoven stories centered at the Met. This feels like a cross between the mixed-up files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler and Night at the Museum. <laughs> so we're both right. Yeah. The stories are filled with magical realism, but because of the setting, they read as incredibly plausible. A brilliant story and a must-read for the fall. That's somebody who gave this five stars. So I'm sure this book, kind of like the first one I picked, is not for everybody. But I think if this sounds appealing to you, it's probably going to be really fun. <laughs> All right, so now I'm going to dovetail off of that in a little bit of a darker way, or maybe a much darker way, but this is also short stories or probably more linked short stories that, that are novel-esque, that have a dash of sly humor and magical realism. It's called The World Doesn't Require You by Rian Amalcar Scott, and the setting for his stories are is this town called Cross River, which was the only successful um the leaders of the town, I guess the town was established in the only place where there was ever a a successful slave re slave revolt. It's mentioned that that has echoes in this town, and so it's a linked um they're linked stories that build to a climax at the end. And some of the characters they say are Tyrone, Tyrone, a ruthless PhD candidate, Jim, an all too obedient robot who serves his master, David Sherman, a struggling musician who just happens to be God's last son. So they're supposed to be fable. Like some of the stories carried down through the generations. It talks about the dialect that's employed through these stories. So I'm really interested to, to read these. Sounds good. This is such a varied list we have today. I know. Not only just in topic, but also even in format. There's like a lot of really different stuff here. We're evolving. Um, <laughs> yes. 
Okay, my next book is one that we talked about briefly last week when we talked about Book of the Month, but I've chosen my Book of the Month pick and your Book of the Month pick for debut. So this book is Wild Game by Adrienne Broder. That is a debut, right? Actually, maybe, it, no, she was a book editor. So maybe this is her debut. It oh. doesn't mention any other book. I think she just, she's an editor. She was an editor okay. at, at Halton. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, then I will talk about it. Okay. So this book is Wild Game, My Mother, Her Lover, and Me. This is the book that both Nicole and I picked for our book of the month uh, selection for September. And this is about a memoir about a girl whose mother is having an affair and uses her daughter sort of as an accomplice in the affair. So she has very complicated views of her mother. This is her looking back on her relationship with her mother and what happened and I guess the role that she played. So I don't know much more than that, except that it sounded good and we both picked it. It's Sarah's fault. We don't like it. Yeah. Yeah. She said, she said, thought it was really good. Okay. So next up on my list is a book called Citizen Outlaw by Charles Barber. And he writes the story of a man called William Junebe Outlaw III. This takes place in New Haven, which is in Connecticut. And New Haven is the city that borders Yale University, I think. Well, Yale's in or New Yale's Haven. in New Haven. Yeah, well, I think the college campus that's in New Haven and New Haven, the city are really, they're really very different. So anyway, he basically, he lived this life of crime until his early 20s. He is eventually sentenced to 85 years for homicide and armed robbery. So he thinks he's going to basically spend the rest of his life in jail. But through a series of events, what happens is his sentence is reduced 60 years. He gets out of jail and he starts working at a Dunkin' Donuts. Like he like reforms his life and he starts reaching out to just former gang members and criminals that he used to work with in like just brokering deals and brokering peace with them. And so he gets to start doing that kind of work. And over the years that he participated in helping, I guess, law enforcement and just helping members of the community and gang members in the community bridge, <clears throat> bridge their relationships and work out compromise. Crime in the area dropped 70 or the homicide rate in the area dropped 70% due to his efforts. So it's about his life and <clears throat> how he changed it around in the work that he's doing now. So that sounds just fascinating. So I'm pretty impressed with, again, the breadth of topics that we've covered today. Right. And the next one is going to take us in a completely different direction. <laughs> okay, so my next pick is a uh, a memoir. It is called Cam Girl. And it's by Issa Mazzei, M-A-Z-Z-E-I. It comes out on November 12th. And this is a memoir of a woman who was a cam girl, which is live streaming women who do things on camera for money. So um, it says a, a candid and hilarious memoir of sex work, shame and self-discovery set in the colorful world of live streaming cam girls. 
So she was uh, broke, didn't know what she was doing with her life, and she decided to make money by stripping, dancing, playing games, and doing it all online for money as a cam girl. So um, this just sounded interesting to me. It's fine. There was a character in a book that I read recently. I'm going to have to think of what book it was, where somebody made money as a cam girl. It was like somebody in high school. And she, I don't know, it just sounded kind of interesting. And this one caught my eye. Have you heard of this book before? Mm-mm. Yeah, not only, I mean, like I said, we we dug deep. <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> totally, we did. Um, yeah. And I guess the... Uh, I don't know. I was going to say, I think she's a screenwriter. So I wonder if this is also going to become a movie. Hmm. Explores complexities of digital life, shame, sexuality, and the tensions between our public and private selves. And there's no reviews yet on Goodreads. Okay. So this comes out on November 12th. It has a great cover too. I'm going to have to look it up. Cam girl. What's on the cover? So the cover is pink. And it has, like, imagine the little generic drawing of a woman that you see on, like, a women's bathroom, you know, just like a stick figure almost of a woman, but the face is a webcam. Oh. I would find that sounds frightening. (laughs) Yeah, no, I think it is frightening. I'm just so intrigued by this book. I have to look up the cover now to see if it's as frightening as you describe it. Oh, the cover's not frightening. The cover is um, attention-getting, I think, but I don't think it's frightening. Okay. All right. I'll have to. I'll have to investigate that. All right. So my next pick is um, a book called "White Negroes: When Cornrows Were in, in Vogue, and Other Thoughts on Cultural Appropriation." It's by Lauren Michelle Jackson, and she's done a bunch of magazine writing, but this is her first. This is her first, I guess, collection of essays and. Her premise is how American culture loves blackness and you see it, I guess you see it through music and pop culture and sayings, but a lot of the times those, those things don't get credited back to their source and the people who produce them definitely are not appreciated. And so Mm. it's this thing that pops up. You see it a lot with like brands will make either brands take something and use it in ways that are not respectful to the originating culture. I think there's just this big thing with Johnny Depp who has, I'm not even sure what his heritage is, but I know he's always claimed to be native American in some way. And there is, I guess his collaboration on a perfume called, I think it's spelled in French, but it's the word savage. There was just this big thing over in terms of relationships with women in general and him being involved with this perfume and who they consulted, you know, because there was backlash against using Native American imagery for a perfume that was called Savage. Just things like that happen, like the brands, Gucci, H&M, they've all gotten into trouble for either not knowing the culture or appropriating it and using it in ways where these big brands, corporations benefit from it, but the cultures from whom they 
borrow these pieces or have always been a part of that culture and that lifestyle are not credited or they really don't get to benefit from things that were their own. So she goes into exploring this topic. It was interesting to me too, because as I was reading this, I was remembering how the Me Too hashtag, how it really took off. And I think it was when a white actress used it with a tweet. I believe it was it Alyssa Milano, I feel like. But anyway, how big it got. But that hashtag had been something that had been around for a year before with people using it to tweet their experiences with it being used in connection to me too. Of course, it's like, it's huge now, but I don't think that anyone even knows that it was a black woman who had originated that hashtag for those purposes. So Hmm. I have thoughts about it. So it'll be interesting for me to just read what her thoughts are because mine shift and change. And I'd like, even for myself, I just want more history and someone who has mm-hmm. done a deep dive into this topic. Cause I feel like it's fascinating and it's something that just seems like it just comes up in the news and in culture all the time. Mm-hmm. It's definitely a, like a hot topic right now. Uh, okay. So my last one, I've included a little bit with reluctance because I have to be honest. I don't think this book sounds that appealing, but everybody who's read it, including Sarah from Sarah's Bookshelves has loved it. And it was a buzz book. So I felt like I had to include it. It's on every you know list for this fall. And this book is called The Secrets We Kept by Laura Prescott. And it is uh, actually had just has just come out this week. And um, oh, did Reese pick it? Reese might have picked it for her book for September. I'm not sure. I don't know why this doesn't sound that interesting to me, but it's about, um, and maybe it's because I've never read the book, Dr. Javago, but it's about these women at the, who work for the CIA. And during the fifties, they are sort of removed from their day at desk jobs and given a new assignment, which is to smuggle the book, Dr. Javago out of Russia, where no one wants to publish it. Everyone's too afraid to publish it. And then to help get it seen and read throughout the rest of the world. Um, I haven't read Dr. Zhivago. I'm guessing it's an anti-communist book. So the, the CAA wanted to use literature to influence people's opinions about, you know, the political situation in Russia, um, use, you know, by let, getting it seen where it wasn't going to be seen in, in, within the country. So there's also like a legendary love story, which is between Boris Pasternak, who wrote Dr. Zhivago and his mistress that is intertwined with the story of what happened in with the CAA. And I don't, I don't know. I mean, I like historical fiction, but for some reason, this book just doesn't sound that interesting to me, but the reviews have been amazing. Mm. Sarah said it was amazing and it is all over every fall, uh, fall book list. So I felt as a service to our listeners that I had to include it and maybe it's great. And maybe I'll read it and be like, I don't know what my problem was. Yeah, maybe it's out on Knopf, which has, is, is a strong literary, strong literary fiction house. (laughs) For me, that would lend weight. I hate the cover. Like I'm just Mm -hmm. so over white women on the cover. 
not only just the white woman, I just don't like, I mean, it's, the cover looks very fifties. It has this fifties font and it kind of is a real throwback cover, but I don't like it either. It's like, there's too much going on. Yeah. And yes, it's a white woman in a green dress. It's kind of like, it looks a lot like Evelyn. Hugo. Gosh, I'm just so, I'm just having a moment with white women on covers because the marketing ploy, you want to really communicate very quickly that this isn't a book that you want to read. I feel the same way about the World War II novels that we get with like the white woman holding a child, you know, walking away or just, we get so many of them. And I know that they feel like women of color don't sell on covers. You know, it's the same thing that they think about magazines or whatever. I was very happy to see an Indian woman on Mahesh Rao's cover, even though it was, it was not a real picture. But even an artistic representation, I was happy to see, like, you see a little brown woman looking out the window on the cover of Dominicana. Jasmine Guillory's covers have had, you know, at the, at the protagonists on the cover, African American women and white men. Um, and some of the, the novels that are coming out that have been, you know, like, I guess, the writers of color who are writing romance, we've been seeing, I've been seeing more women of color on those covers. But I, you know, I guess just the fact that there are just so many novels that just, you know, it's like a white woman on the cover. I'm just fatigued. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't blame you. All right. That was my last book. That was your last book. So my last book is... How We Fight for Our Lives by Saeed Jones. And this one is the memoir of a young black man from the South. I believe he does a lot. He has edited a lot of pieces and been the LGBTQIA voice on a number of publications. And this is his memoir about growing up. And he said something really interesting, which was the thing, because I'm not heavy into memoirs, but he made a statement that I really liked and it has me intrigued to hear his story because I thought, I'm just pulling up what he said, this quote, people don't just happen, right? Saeed Jones. We sacrifice former versions of ourselves. We sacrifice the people who dared to raise us. The I it seems doesn't exist until we're able to say, I am no longer yours. And I think that's just such a, such an interesting statement in terms of, in terms of the dynamic of creation, the creation of your identity and what you have to, I guess what you destroy in order to create yourself is so interesting to me. And that is just like, Oh, I want to read this. Besides the fact that, of course, he has had probably, you know, more of a reason to think about identity and carving out your identity and what he has had to lose or change in order to have his identity and find his place as a, a young, as a young gay black man. So that book was also a buzz book at PEA this year. Mm. So you have it. And I feel like I, I, uh, yes, I think I do. I think it must be upstairs. I don't see it on the shelf right here, but yes, I think I do have it. It's really short. It's coming out October 8th. It's 208 pages. Um, yeah, 
I definitely have that one. Roxane Gay called it an astonishing, unparalleled memoir. A rhapsody in the truest sense of the word. And Jacqueline Woodson really liked it as well. And it's on every, it's on every most anticipated book. Lots of buzz around this mm-hmm. one. It's on um, old magazines list, Marie Claire, Entertainment Weekly, The Millions, Library Journal, Book List, Refinery29. The list just goes on and on. <laughs> like, so everyone wants to read this book, wants you to read this book. And yeah, I think that's such an arresting statement. Just for that, I want to read this book because mm-hmm. in order to be each version of yourself, you do, there are things that have to fall by the wayside or you can't, you know, you're no longer, when you embrace one identity, a lot of times it means that you are no longer who you were to someone else. Mm-hmm. So, all right. So we have a, all right. Like five minutes. So Gail, do you want sure. to briefly go into what you, you know, give us the wrap up? You said you finished a couple of things. Yes. And I've talked about them both already, so I can be quick. Um, the first is I stuck with that book, um, Summer Lanes. Okay. And the spider on um, the I finished it. <laughs> the spider on the cover. And I finished it. And it got marginally better. Like the there was a little bit of tension um in the end, there's actually one, the one really funny part that really got me to keep reading it was it's, you know, I think I mentioned it's about these kids growing up in DC in the fifties. And you were discovering and all these little nuggets about DC. Yes. In fact, they mentioned my street at one point. Ooh. So at, at one point the boys decide to, to that they're going to, and a girl, it's the boys and a girl. And they decide in the middle of the night, they're going to go ride their bikes down to the mall the National Mall, and they're going to break into the Museum of Natural History and steal this very rare spider from its cage. And I will not um, weigh in on whether or not their plan succeeds, but first of all, there was like a lot of tension with that. Like, and they, so they do this like at 1030, maybe it was like midnight. They, they ride their bikes from literally where I live right now, all the way downtown to try to break into the museum. And so they're talking about everything they pass along the way. And that was kind of fun. And then what happens at the museum and then their return home. So, uh, that part, like that, I actually was kind of flipping pages quickly on that part. So I, it kind of it redeemed the book for me somewhat. <laughs> so I'm glad I read it. It's already back at the library. Um, safe. really dismayed to see, yes, it's safe at the library. I was dismayed to see that when I, I did the um, automatic checkout, because I when I returned to the book, I also picked up a book I had on hold. And my account came up and it said delinquent. That's never happened before. Oh. And I know. And they, even though DC gives you a grace period on fees, they still mark your account as delinquent if you have an overdue book. So I went up to the woman and I said, um, my account is delinquent and I just returned the book. Do you know if that's the reason why? And she said, well, let me, <laughs> let me scan it in. So she scanned it in and then she looked at it. She's like, you're fine. But it was like very disturbing to me. So anyway, I did return. I did finish and return that. So book you're back and, on the right I mean, side of the law. Back on the right side of the law. And I've started our next book club book, which is called The Real Michael Swan, uh, which we will be talking about in a couple weeks. And so that's done. And then I finished the John Taylor memoir uh, in the pleasure groove, Love and Death and Duran Duran. Mm -hmm. And I kid you not, I think this is a top five read for me this year. Like I, I loved that book so much. 
And I thought it was just, it was interesting. It was well-written. I loved the narration. I loved the journey that he took us on. You know, he grew up as this kid in Birmingham who just loved music all the way through. Birmingham, England? And it's like Birmingham, England. And it's, you know, it's every like behind the music trope you can think of, you know, <laughs> check. how the band members find each other, check. How, you know, their improbable rise to fame, check. Uh, the the intense bond between the, the bandmates, check. The inevitable slide into drugs and addiction, check. The breakup of the band just after they got mega popular and performed at Live Aid, check. Like the the solo projects, the... Uh, the the misplaced attempts at band reunion, the you know the quickie marriage, like everything is in there. It's what's happened. It's like this the the story of every musician, and it was so good. Like I can't explain why this book was. You're so just good, like it was so it. cliche, but it was amazing. I think it's because it was told through his perspective, and it felt fresh. Like it f- completely felt like a new story to me, even though I've read it before. And you've li- but and you and you listened to it. So and it I was him whispering it, and then this I in went your ear. On, yeah, he's narrating, and I thought he was a great narrator. I did. I thought it was just also really well written. I'm kind of curious to know who wrote it, like who ghost wrote that for, with him or for him, because I thought they did a great job. It just was eloquent, and I liked it so much that I bought the. I went on, found it on used somewhere, and bought the print because I wanted it on my shelf. Like I just, I love it, hmm. and I'm curious to know if there are pictures in it. So. <laughs> If you like 80s music and you enjoy rock memoirs, run and do not walk to get this book because it was really good. Run and do not walk. That's going to be our latest. That's our moniker now for high praise. Run and do not walk. Run and do not walk to get (laughs) this This was a run and do not walk. Run to your laptop. (laughs) Yes. Uh, so anyway, that is my, that's where I am right now. So I, I'm now reading our book club book and I am listening to Catherine Center's Things You Save in a Fire. Now, is that different enough that you can, that you'll be okay listening? It sounds like this book would be hard to follow up. Yes, it's fine. And it's narrated by Therese Plummer, who I love. Okay. Friend of the friend of the podcast. Friend of the podcast. So, That's yeah. good. Yep. Friend of the podcast. No, I think it, I think it'll be a good. In fact, it's so different. Such a totally different book. I don't think I could do like another rock memoir right now, right? Because it would be basically the same story, hmm. um, and maybe not as compelling. Yeah. Not as compelling, but oh, John Taylor, I love him. That's great. Okay, what about you? So I'm still reading. Patsy still listening to. One Night in Georgia. I love both of them. So I have no complaints. Just happily listening and reading when I have a, a moment, but I am not having as much time for that lately. So. Okay. So that's that. So we'll talk about right. my literary news next time. I, it'll keep because the, the article that oh, I wanted okay. to get some information from won't load Anyway, so we'll take that as a sign that this is our show. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds good. All right. So until next time, happy reading. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Readerly Report. You can find all of our shows on iTunes or at thereaderlyreport.com. Please join our Facebook group, Readerly Report Readers, where you can talk to other listeners about their reading life. 
can also find Nicole at NicoleBonilla.com and me, Gail, at EverydayIWriteTheBookBlog.com. Finally, we'd love it if you left us a review on iTunes and told your book-loving friends about us. Thanks. Thanks.